Welcome to the Nourishing Liberty podcast. It is autumn. It is the end of September. And here we are. Is it officially autumn, fall? It uh, actually is. September 21st is the day that it turns over. Oh, that's right. I did see a couple of days ago. Pumpkin spice everything. Officially okay now. (laughs) Well, what happened here (laughs) was we got a storm two days ago, one day ago. Uh Rain. And the temperature dropped 20 degrees. So here I am, cozy yep. in my sweater, my scarf. And it's here. And actually loving it, Rachel. Loving Good. it, loving it. Good. Uh, seasons are, there's something about seasons that's so mentally refreshing. Of course, here in sunny Florida, it's uh, always summer except for two weeks in the winter. <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're still swimming in our pool down here. Um, and it's sunny and beautiful, but it's the rainy season. So it is starting to cool off though. So that's good. Yes. And by cool off, you mean it's getting down to 90 degrees? <laughs> yes. It's down into the eighties some days. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> nice and brisk. <laughs> I will say I am a summer baby and I absolutely love the summer for so many reasons. One of them is because I love the warmth. And I will also say this time of year is really special. It's so, so special. And I love the mornings when it's not humid anymore. Oh, it's such a relief. Yeah. Just such a beautiful relief. So I welcome it as much as I love the warmth. And you know what else I love? The long days. Yeah. Those are fun. Fun, fun, fun. Yeah, they start to get shorter from here. Yes. And I, I do not enjoy uh, the early evenings or when it gets dark earlier and earlier. But I am getting in the mood for Halloween, for Christmas and all of that. Yeah. Um, I always get into the mood right around now. So. Well, it happens whether we're ready or not. Yep. Keeps happening. So Rachel, last week, we touched on the end of our conversation. Uh, We touched on the jumping worms and how (laughs) jumping worms are such a thing. (laughs) Yes, many local gardeners and uh, permaculturists despise them. them. And they are- Do they bite? No, they just jump. They don't bite us. They bite food. They bite. And they, and they destroy your crops and your gardens. Well, what they do is they change the composition of the soil and change the um, ability for plants to root in the soil. So it's not like they're actually eating the living plant, but they're making it inhospitable. Uh, I see. Interesting. Most yeah. worms do the opposite, but these jumping worms um, make it not so good. And they are, you said, an invasive species? Invasive species, yes. Yeah, and that's what we're talking about today. Yes, exactly. Very interesting. Invasive species and why it matters to our food systems. Because many times you will think of invasive species and it's not something we eat. So why does it matter? 
And we're going to talk about that in the cornerstones and the foundation. So where do we start with such a broad topic? Uh, and what I'll do is I'll start with a definition because definitions are important. They help us create a baseline. And this, this definition, I'm just going to read it. Uh, it comes from wildlife informer. And what is an invasive species? An invasive species is a living organism that is introduced to a new ecosystem that it is not native to and causes harm. The invading species does not necessarily need to be from another country and is typically introduced either intentionally or unintentionally by human activity. So what that means is exactly what it said, but that these species, whether they are plants or animals, because they're introduced into an ecosystem, they did not, they did not um, evolve within that ecosystem. They either can outcompete the natives or they cause some other type of harm. Like in the case of the jumping worm, they make it so the soil is not how the plants need it to be, right? Mm -hmm. Now, we can also talk about species that are introduced that are not invasive. So these are typically called non-native, but they're not invasive because they don't outcompete. They don't, they don't cause, cause harm. harm. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So here on the East Coast, I don't know about in Florida, you can maybe tell me. One example is the kudzu vine. Yeah, I was thinking about that. That was what immediately came to mind. Okay. And also similar to that, the porcelain berry vine. So what these vines do is they choke out the forests. They literally choke them out. And you'll see driving along here on the East Coast, you can see, you can pass by entire forests that are blanketed with these vines. Mm -hmm. Whether that's a neighborhood, tiny little forest or much larger forest, they're, they're blanketed by these vines. What does that mean for food? Maybe in one specific place, it doesn't have a huge significant meaning. What it does mean is that the foods and the animals that we count on for nourishment, they start to stumble within their ecosystems. Something mm -hmm. might, that, that foundation is no longer stable. And so we have many disruptions within those ecosystems that cause disruptions further along. Yeah, I, I don't think I've seen much kudzu here in Florida, but I remember in North Carolina, it was a huge problem. Yeah, yeah. huge problem. So I do wanna point very briefly, or maybe not briefly, I don't know, we'll have to see where this goes, to the research of Doug Ptolemy. And he is an entomologist who studied uh, insects, right? That's what entomologists do. And what he found, this is so striking because it's clear, it's such a clear delineation that a, an ecosystem, a, a bioregion needs 70% of its biomass to be native in order to support the native insect population. Hmm. And we need that native insect population to support everything else above it. So the birds, think about the birds. Now, I was listening to some of his talks and there's an, 
absolutely staggering statistic, which is that we've lost one third of our bird population in North America in the past 50 years. And when you look at the foundation that we need, we need the plants, our native plants, mm -hmm. because many of these plants are specific host plants to bugs that the birds eat. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And without that, you can see how that triggers losses further up in the food chain. Of course. Yeah. And, and probably pesticide use. We don't like the bugs, but they feed the birds. Yes. Yeah. So we have to figure out some other way to coexist with bugs. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, and how, how to bring them back, right? And, and so one of the main cornerstone bugs, shall we say, that Ptolemy researches is caterpillars, or that he talks about anyway. Mm -hmm. I don't know. He, he's probably done tremendously more than I can absorb in a few afternoons of listening. But one of the things that stands out is his research on caterpillars and the host plants needed for those caterpillars because birds feed the caterpillars to their babies. Mm -hmm. And you need, a bird needs thousands of caterpillars to get one nest of hatchlings out. When you think about that, what are those host plants? Well, we know a very common one that's now in our cultural dialogue is milkweed and monarchs. Right. Right. But mm -hmm. there are other host plants for other caterpillars. Yeah. And we, we, we must begin thinking about cultivating those native plants in our bioregions, right? So your bioregion is going to be slightly different than mine. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> maybe more than slightly, but <laughs> what is it that supports the, those insect and those caterpillar populations? Mm -hmm. We have some butterfly bushes and things around our yard, but that's a good thing to think about as far as like when you're planning your landscaping. Yes, exactly. Incorporate some things like that. Yes, and when you think about that measure of 70% of our plant biomass needs to be native species, mm -hmm. it's incredible. It gives us some, it gives us a guideline, right? I, I don't necessarily have a good mental grasp of what does that look like in terms of trees and bushes and grasses? Because it's, it's very hard to get the scope of that visually for me. And how much of that is underground? Uh, I don't know. But it's, it's some kind of guideline, something to start with. Such a different way to think about um, the environment. So much of our focus seems to be on not polluting. But we should start thinking about proactive things to support our food systems and our environment. Yes. Food for thought, Liz. <laughs> food for thought, indeed. So um, back to the kudzu, I'm curious, do you know, is it known, how did the kudzu problem get started? Like where did, where did this invasive species invade from? Do we know? Uh, I, I know that many of the ornamentals are coming from uh, Asian countries. I do not know specifically for kudzu. I think porcelain berry came from 
um, you know what, I don't know, I don't want to get this wrong, but over in the, many of the ornamentals are coming from those exotic <laughs> Pacific countries, right? And put here and as they're, part of like uh, ornamental landscaping. Yeah? Yes, exactly, exactly. Well, of course, here in Florida, we have a, famously, we have a problem with um, invasive uh, boa constrictor snakes that are uh, brought here from the pet trade and uh, they get too big to manage and then people just release them into the wild. And uh, those big snakes are not native to Florida, but like you say, they've outcompeted, they become huge and they become a big problem. So the solution here is I think they uh, will pay people a certain amount per snake that they can capture and kill because it helps the, the um, native species uh, survive so you know same thing with plants is anybody <laughs> paying people to destroy kudzu <laughs> well i don't know about that that's a, a really good question is how or, or what are the incentives to remove or reduce the use of invasive ornamentals and also included in that is bamboo oh man bamboo is invasive oh terribly is it harmful? Well, it takes over. It completely takes over. Really? I didn't know that. I thought yeah, we have nothing it. that eats it. Oh, well, we make hardwood floors out of it now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Maybe um, we need more bamboo hardwood floors and more bamboo cutting boards and more bamboo everything just to control because it, it, it just takes everything out. Yeah, pandas. We need yeah. to introduce pandas into the wild. My husband is actually sitting here listening to us. So he might chime in. <laughs> well, I mean, as cute as pandas are. Hmm. Oh, pandas do not like to. Uh, they, they, they're trying desperately to go extinct. They require a lot of human intervention just to reproduce and stay alive. Pandas are just an interesting phenomenon. If you, yes. if you uh, look into those, but um, wow, well, I they might be cute they're... to look at, but they're not cute to <laughs> interact with. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, that, I did not know that about bamboo. Huh, yeah. Okay. Yep. So it is important to think about these things as we landscape. Okay. Absolutely. And think about the impact further along on the food chain. Now, one interesting, uh, one interesting animal in all of this is the honeybee, because the honeybees are not native to North America. We have something like 400, 450 native bee species. And then we have the honeybee. And I've read conflicting things on whether it's invasive versus non-native. So I'm not gonna try to answer that in this, it is important to note that our, whatever pollinate, pollinator plants we bring in, will native pollinator plants will be helpful to our native species. All of them. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and so it can be non-native, but not considered invasive. Yes, yeah. exactly. And cool. you know what? Banana trees here, I think, are another example of that because they don't take over. In fact, they don't grow enough any season here because we have so many months of cold. 
Yeah. So they'll never fruit. But again, I mean, then you have to go back and look at it in terms of that 30-70 biomass ratio. Mm -hmm. Because if we're planting banana trees somewhere, we're not planting that native biomass. Mm -hmm. Very important considerations. Interesting. Yeah, I talked with our, um, we have a, a yard guy who helps us uh, with the uh, yard stuff. He's going to, in the spring, he's going to plant four orange trees for me and two peach trees. I'm so excited. Nice. There yeah. you go. Look, you're going to, that's because that's, those are, are those native to that part of Florida? Oranges are, um, but the peach, the peach tree is more north of here, like in Georgia, Georgia peaches. Um, and he's going to have to uh, tell me how to help out my soil here to support the peach trees. Okay. And it would be really interesting to see what native insects those two trees support. Yeah. And the thing is, he explained how you have to get, you can't just get one, one orange tree because you need cross-pollination. So we have to get them in pairs and um, same for the peach tree, cross-pollination. So you have to get two trees, not just one. Um, but yeah, there's something about uh, citrus loves the acidic soil that we have here. That's a lot of sand. It's very sandy soil. Citrus loves that. But the, the peach trees need a little bit different. So, but I mean, there's things that I can do as far as conditioning and fertilization to help the peach trees grow, so. Yeah, that's, you're gonna be capturing good food sources there. Exactly. Yeah. Well, so looking at this also in terms of uh, our food systems, right? Because ultimately we, we are looking at the, these things from the lens of how do we continue feeding ourselves? Yeah. How do we look at this on a population level, whether that's a uh, regional population level, a more countrywide or a global? And if we continue to degrade our food chain and to degrade our ecosystems, we are not going to have the ability to sustain food production. Something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. And when you think about the, the foundational level, when you, have, when you don't have enough food left to feed the smaller level mammals or birds or smaller reptiles in an ecosystem, you're gonna lose things further up. And that, those are things that we also depend on for food. Yeah, good point. So yeah. this is a, a whole system level way of looking at it and a whole system level challenge of res restoration. I like that. Um, that gives me something proactive, like I was saying, something proactive that I can do rather than um, reactive, like, you know, recycle, reuse, all that. Yeah. Because um, I've, I've heard, I don't know if you've heard this, but sometimes the recycling you carefully sort it and clean it and get thrown right in the trash with everything else. In some places they don't have, they, they just want you to get into the habit, but they don't have the infrastructure behind it to actually recycle your recycling. Um, I've heard that that can be the case. So I, I'm not a person that enjoys pro forma uh, exercises like that. 
Yeah. Um, it's, it's very unsatisfying to me to know that you're going through the motions, but it's not actually doing anything. Um, but planting certain plants and avoiding others, that's something proactive that I can actually do that matters. So um, this, is, this is a good thing to know about and research further. Absolutely. And just to circle back to the researcher, Doug Ptolemy, I have not yet read his new book, Nature's Best Hope, but I do have that on my list. I'm going to be reading that like two books from now. Hmm. And uh, that is a, all about what you just said. How do we, as, uh, as caring people, how do we implement these action steps to mitigate some of the most severe uh, consequences of our ecosystem destruction that we've already created. Yeah. Yeah. Really good things to think about. There's always something, right? Yeah. <laughs> There's always something. But the good news is too, Rachel, that the these measures that we can put in to solve this are fun and beautiful. I mean, I look outside, we have we have our pollinator gardens scattered around. And right now, uh, it, it's so much fun. We have this big patch of goldenrod. And there's something else in there, but I'm not quite sure what it is. It's a white, very small white flower on a very long stem. And I open the door and we're surrounded by butterflies and bees right now. It's amazing. And that goldenrod, I mean, all summer long, I've been waiting for that goldenrod, finally. It just popped up. I mean, maybe a couple weeks ago, but it's such a late one. And that's important also because our pollinators need something for every bit of these summer and fall days. So it's wonderful to find the things that bloom in different seasons. Very good. Sorry about the noise over here at my house. They're doing some work outside. <laughs> oh, I can't hear it at all. I don't think it okay. comes through. Good. Yeah. Good. Well, that's our big topic for today and something to think about, something to plan yards around and plan landscapes around and think about it into the future. I love it. As always, very useful and something that I hadn't thought about very much until you brought it up. So thank you for educating me and thank you for educating our audience. All right, Rachel. And I wanna keep hearing updates on your garden and your fruit trees as you grow. I'll let you know. All right, talk to you soon. All right, bye-bye Liz.